Welcome, and thank you for downloading and listening to Episode 3 of Pygon Tales. Today's episode will be a little bit different from the previous episodes in that we're going to focus on just one author today. Uh, today we're going to have five stories by Hector Hugh Monroe, uh, better known by his pen name Saki. Uh, he was born in 1870. Uh, he was a British writer born in Burma, which is now Myanmar, uh, best known for his witty and mischievous short stories. Um, he really liked to poke fun at, uh, at Edwardian culture. Um, he was heavily influenced by uh, Oscar Wilde, Lewis Carroll, and, and Rudyard Kipling. And he himself uh, influenced A.A. A. Milne, Noel Coward, and P.G. Woodhouse. Aside from his short stories, which he's most well known for, he's probably best known for his episodic book, The Westminster Alice. This was a parliamentary parody of Alice in Wonderland, and is, a, is an interesting read. He died in World War I. Uh, in November 1916, he was sheltering in a shell crater near Beaumont-Hamel in France uh, during the Battle of Ancre. Uh, he was killed by a German sniper. Uh, according to some of the people present, and, and many people after the fact, his last words were actually, put that bloody cigarette out. Well, without further ado, what do you say we, uh, we get into our first story? Gabriel Ernest, by Saki. There is a wild beast in your woods, said the artist Cunningham as he was being driven to the station. It was the only remark he had made during the drive, but as Van Cheel had talked incessantly, his companion's silence had not been noticeable. A stray fox or two and some resident weasels, nothing more formidable, said Van Cheel. The artist said nothing. What did you mean about a wild beast, said Van Cheel later when they were on the platform? Nothing, my imagination. Here is the train, said Cunningham. That afternoon, Van Cheel went for one of his frequent rambles through his woodland property. He had a stuffed bittern in his study and knew the names of quite a number of wildflowers, so his aunt had possibly some justification in describing him as a great naturalist. At any rate, he was a great walker. It was his custom to take mental notes of everything he saw during his walks not so much for the purpose of assisting contemporary science as to provide topics for conversation afterward. When the bluebells began to show themselves in flower, he made a point of informing everyone of the fact. The season of the year might have warned his hearers of the likelihood of such an encounter, but at least they felt that he was being absolutely frank with them. What Van Cheel saw on this particular afternoon was, however, something far removed from his ordinary range of experience. On a shelf of smooth stone overhanging a deep pool in the hollow of an oak coppice, a boy of about sixteen lay asprawl, drying his wet brown limbs luxuriously in the sun. His wet hair, parted by a recent dive, lay close to his head, and his light brown eyes, so light that there was an almost tigerish gleam in them, were turned towards Van Cheel with a certain lazy watchfulness. It was an unexpected apparition, and Van Cheel found himself engaged in the novel process of thinking before he spoke. Where on earth could this wild-looking boy hail from? The miller's wife had lost a child some two months ago, supposed to have been swept away by the mill race, but that had been a mere baby, not a half-grown lad. 
What are you doing here? he demanded. Obviously sunning myself, replied the boy. Where do you live? Here, in these woods. You can't live in the woods, said Van Cheel. They are very nice woods, said the boy, with a touch of patronage in his voice. But where do you sleep at night? I don't sleep at night. That's my busiest time. Van Cheel began to have an irritated feeling that he was grappling with a problem that was eluding him. What do you feed on? he asked. Flesh, said the boy, and he pronounced the word with a slow relish as though he were tasting it. Flesh? What flesh? Since it interests you, rabbits, wild fowl, hares, poultry, lambs in their season, children, when I can get any, they're usually too well locked in at night when I do most of my hunting. It's quite two months since I tasted child flesh. Ignoring the chafing nature of the last remark, Van Scheel tried to draw the boy on the subject of possible poaching operations. You're talking rather through your hat when you speak of feeding on hares. Considering the nature of the boy's toilet, the simile was hardly an apt one. Our hillside hares aren't easily caught. At night I hunt on four feet, was the somewhat cryptic response. I suppose you mean that you hunt with a dog, hazarded Van Cheel. The boy rolled slowly over onto his back and laughed a weird low laugh that was pleasantly like a chuckle and disagreeably like a snarl. I don't fancy any dog would be very anxious for my company, especially at night. Van Cheel began to feel that there was something positively uncanny about the strange-eyed, strange-tongued youngster. I can't have you staying in these woods, he declared authoritatively. I fancy you'd rather have me here than in your house, said the boy. The prospect of this wild, nude animal in Van Cheel's primly ordered house was certainly an alarming one. If you don't go, I shall have to make you, said Van Cheel. The boy turned like a flash, plunged into the pool, and in a moment had flung his wet and glistening body halfway up the bank where Van Cheel was standing. In an otter, the move would not have been remarkable. In a boy, Van Cheel found it sufficiently startling. His foot slipped as he made an involuntary backward movement, and he found himself almost prostrate on the slippery, weed-grown bank, with those tigerish yellow eyes not very far from his own. Almost instinctively, he half raised his hand to his throat. The boy laughed again, a laugh in which the snarl had nearly driven out the chuckle, and then, with another of his astonishing lightning movements, plunged out of view into a yielding tangle of weed and fern. What an extraordinary wild animal, said Van Cheel as he picked himself up, and then he recalled Cunningham's remark, There is a wild beast in your woods. Walking slowly homeward, Van Cheel began to turn over in his mind various local occurrences which might be traceable to the existence of this astonishing young savage. Something had been thinning the game in the woods lately, poultry had been missing from the farms. Hares were growing unaccountably scarcer, and complaints had reached him of lambs being carried off bodily from the hills. Was it possible that this wild boy was really hunting the countryside in company with some clever poacher dogs? He had spoken of hunting four-footed by night, but then again he had hinted strangely at no dog caring to come near him, especially at night. It was certainly puzzling, 
And then, as Van Scheel ran his mind over the various depredations that had been committed during the last month or two, he came suddenly to a dead stop, alike in his walk and his speculations. The child missing from the mill two months ago. The accepted theory was that it had tumbled into the mill race and been swept away. But the mother had always declared that she had heard a shriek on the hillside of the house, in the opposite direction from the water. It was unthinkable, of course, but he wished that the boy had not made that uncanny remark about child flesh eaten two months ago. Such dreadful things should not be said, even in fun. Van Cheel, contrary to his usual wont, did not feel disposed to be communicative about his discovery in the wood. His position as a parish councillor and justice of the peace seemed somehow compromised by the fact that he was harboring a personality of such doubtful repute on his property. There was even a possibility that a heavy bill of damages for raided lambs and poultry might be laid at his door. At dinner that night, he was quite unusually silent. "'Where's your voice gone to?' said his aunt. "'One would think you had seen a wolf.' Van Cheel, who was not familiar with the old saying, thought the remark rather foolish. If he had seen a wolf on his property, his tongue would have been extraordinarily busy with the subject. At breakfast next morning, Van Cheel was conscious that his feeling of uneasiness regarding yesterday's episode had not wholly disappeared, and he resolved to go by train to the neighboring cathedral town, hunt up Cunningham, and learn from him what he had really seen that had prompted the remark about a wild beast in the woods. With this resolution taking, his usual cheerfulness partly returned, and he hummed a bright little melody as he sauntered into the morning room for his customary cigarette. As he entered the room, the melody gave way abruptly for a pious invocation. Gracefully asprawl on the ottoman, in an attitude of almost exaggerated repose, was the boy of the woods. He was drier than when Van Cheel had last seen him, but no other alteration was noticeable in his toilet. "'How dare you come here?' asked Van Cheel furiously. "'You told me I was not to stay in the woods,' said the boy calmly. "'But not to come here! Supposing my aunt should see you!' And with a view to minimizing that catastrophe, Van Cheel hastily obscured as much of his unwelcome guest as possible under the folds of a morning post. At that moment, his aunt entered the room. "'This is a poor boy who has lost his way, and lost his memory. He doesn't know who he is or where he comes from,' explained Van Cheel desperately, glancing apprehensively at the waif's face to see whether he was going to add inconvenient candor to his other savage propensities. Miss Van Cheel was enormously interested. "'Perhaps his underlinen is marked,' she suggested." He seems to have lost most of that, too, said Van Cheel, making frantic little grabs at the morning post to keep it in its place. A naked homeless child appealed to Miss Van Cheel as warmly as a stray kitten or derelict puppy would have done. We must do all we can for him, she decided, and in a very short time a messenger, dispatched to the rectory where a page boy was kept, had returned with a suit of pantry clothes and the necessary accessories of shirt, shoes, collar, etc. Clothed, clean, and groomed, the boy lost none of his uncanniness in Van Cheel's eyes, but his aunt found him sweet. We must call him something till we know who he really is, she said. Gabriel Ernest, I think. Those are nice, suitable names. Van Cheel agreed, 
but he privately doubted whether they were being grafted onto a nice, suitable child. His misgivings were not diminished by the fact that his staid and elderly spaniel had bolted out of the house at the first incoming of the boy, and now, obstinately, remained shivering and yapping at the further end of the orchard. While the canary, usually as vocally industrious as Van Cheele himself, had put itself on an allowance of frightened cheeps, more than ever he was resolved to consult Cunningham without loss of time. As he drove off to the station, his aunt was arranging that Gabriel Ernest should help her to entertain the infant members of her Sunday school class at tea that afternoon. Cunningham was not at first disposed to be communicative. My mother died of some brain trouble, he explained. So you will understand why I am averse to dwelling on anything of an impossibly fantastic nature that I may see or think that I may have seen. But what did you see? persisted Van Cheele. What I thought I saw was something so extraordinary that no really sane man could dignify it with the credit of having actually happened. I was standing the last evening I was with you, half hidden in the hedge growth by the orchard gate, watching the dying glow of the sunset. Suddenly I became aware of a naked boy, a bather of some neighboring pool I took him to be, who was standing out on the bare hillside also watching the sunset. His pose was so suggestive of some wild fawn of pagan myth that I instantly wanted to engage him as a model, and in another moment I think I should have hailed him. But just then the sun dipped out of view and all the orange and pink slid out of the landscape, leaving it cold and gray. At the same moment an astounding thing happened. The boy vanished too. What? Vanished away into nothing? asked Van Cheele excitedly. No, that was the dreadful part of it, answered the artist. On the open hillside, where the boy had been standing a second ago, stood a large wolf, blackish in color, with gleaming fangs and cruel yellow eyes. You may think... But Van Cheele did not stop for anything as futile as thought. Already he was tearing at top speed towards the station. He dismissed the idea of a telegram. Gabriel Ernest as a werewolf was a hopelessly inadequate effort at conveying the situation, and his aunt would think it was a code message to which he had omitted to give her the key. His one hope was that he might reach home before sundown. The cab, which he chartered at the other end of the railway journey, bore him with what seemed exasperating slowness along the country roads, which were pink and mauve with the flush of the sinking sun. His aunt was putting away some unfinished jams and cake when he arrived. "'Where is Gabriel Ernest?' he almost screamed. "'He is taking the little tube child home,' said his aunt. "'It was getting so late I thought it wasn't safe to let it go back alone. "'What a lovely sunset, isn't it?' But Van Cheele, although not oblivious of the glow in the western sky, did not stay to discuss its beauties. At a speed for which he was scarcely geared, he raced along the narrow lane that led to the home of the Toops. On one side ran the swift current of the mill stream, on the other rose the stretch of bare hillside. A dwindling rim of red sun showed still in the skyline, and the next turning must bring him in view of the ill-assorted couple he was pursuing. Then the color went suddenly out of things, and a gray light settled itself with a quick shiver over the landscape. Van Cheele heard a shrill wail of fear and stopped running. Nothing was ever seen again of the tube child or Gabriel Ernest. 
but the latter's discarded garments were found lying in the road, so it was assumed that the child had fallen into the water, and that the boy had stripped and jumped in, in a vain endeavor to save it. Van Cheel and some workmen who were nearby at the time testified to having heard a child scream loudly just near the spot where the clothes were found. Miss Toop, who had eleven other children, was decently resigned to her bereavement, but Miss Van Cheel sincerely mourned her lost foundling. It was on her initiative that a memorial brass was put up in the parish church to Gabriel Ernest, an unknown boy who bravely sacrificed his life for another. Van Cheel gave way to his aunt in most things, but he flatly refused to subscribe to the Gabriel Ernest Memorial. Well, that story was written in 1909, and it, it first appeared in the Westminster Gazette, and later appeared in the collection Reginald in Russia in 1910. Uh, this story has appeared in many anthologies. Most recently, uh, it appeared in the book Unnatural Creatures, edited by Neil Gaiman in 2013. All right, let's move on to our next story. The Music on the Hill by Saki. Sylvia Selton ate her breakfast in the morning room at Yesney with a pleasant sense of ultimate victory, such as a fervent Ironside might have permitted himself on the morrow of Worcester fight. She was scarcely pugnacious by temperament, but belonged to that more successful class of fighters who are pugnacious by circumstance. Fate had willed that her life should be occupied with a series of small struggles usually with the odds slightly against her, and usually she had just managed to come through winning. And now she felt that she had brought her hardest and certainly most important struggle to a successful issue. To have married Mortimer Selton, dead Mortimer as his more intimate enemies called him, in the teeth of the cold hostility of his family and in spite of his unaffected indifference to women, was indeed an achievement that needed some determination and adroitness to carry through. Yesterday she had brought her victory to its concluding stage by wrenching her husband away from town and its group of satellite watering places and settling him down, in the vocabulary of her kind, in this remote, wood-girt manor farm which was his country house. "'You will never get Mortimer to go,' his mother had said carpingly. But if he once goes, he'll stay. Yesney throws almost as much spell over him as town does. One can understand what holds him to town. But Yesney? And the dowager had shrugged her shoulders. There was a somber, almost savage wildness about Yesney that was certainly not likely to appeal to town-bred tastes. And Sylvia, notwithstanding her name, was accustomed to nothing much more sylvan than leafy Kensington. She looked on the country as something excellent and wholesome in its way, but which was apt to become troublesome if you encouraged it overmuch. Distrust of town life had been a new thing with her, born of her marriage with Mortimer, and she had watched with satisfaction the gradual fading of what she had called the Jerriman Street look in his eyes, 
as the woods and heather of Yesney had closed in on them yesternight. Her willpower and strategy had prevailed. Mortimer would stay. Outside the morning room window was a triangular slope of turf which the indulgent might call a lawn, and beyond its low hedge of neglected fuchsia bushes, a steeper slope of heather and bracken dropped down into cavernous combs overgrown with oak and yew. In its wild open savagery, there seemed a stealthy linking of the joy of life with the terror of unseen things. Sylvia smiled complacently as she gazed with a school of art appreciation at the landscape, and then, of a sudden, she almost shuddered. It is very wild, she said to Mortimer, who had joined her. One could almost think that in such places the worship of Pan had never quite died out. The worship of Pan never has died out, said Mortimer. Other, newer gods have drawn aside his votaries from time to time, but he is the nature god to whom all must come back at last. He has been called the father of all gods, but most of his children have been stillborn. Sylvia was religious in an honest, vaguely devotional kind of way, and did not like to hear her beliefs spoken of as mere aftergrowths. But it was at least something new and hopeful to hear dead Mortimer speak with such energy and conviction on any subject. You don't really believe in Pan, she asked incredulously. I've been a fool in most things, said Mortimer quietly, but I'm not such a fool as not to believe in Pan when I'm down here. And if you're wise, you won't disbelieve in him too boastfully while you're in his country. It was not till a week later, when Sylvia had exhausted the attractions of the woodland walks around Yesney, that she ventured out on a tour of inspection of the farm buildings. A farmyard suggested in her mind a scene of cheerful bustle, with churns and flails and smiling dairymaids and teams of horses drinking knee-deep in duck-crowded ponds. As she wandered among the gaunt gray buildings of Yesney Manor Farm, her first impression was one of crushing stillness and desolation, as though she had happened on some lone, deserted homestead, long given over to owls and cobwebs. Then came a sense of furtive, watchful hostility, the same shadow of unseen things that seemed to lurk in the wooded combs and coppices. From behind heavy doors and shuttered windows came the restless stamp of hoof or rasp of chain halter, and at times a muffled bellow from some stalled beast. From a distant corner, a shaggy dog watched her with intent, unfriendly eyes. As she drew near, it slipped quietly into its kennel, and slipped out again as noiselessly when she had passed by. A few hens, questing for food under a rick, stole away under a gate at her approach. Sylvia felt that if she had come across any human beings in this wilderness of barn and byre, they would have fled wraith-like from her gaze. At last, turning a corner quickly, she came upon a living thing that did not fly from her. A stretch in a pool of mud was an enormous sow, gigantic beyond the town woman's wildest computation of swine flesh, and speedily alert to resent and, if necessary, repel the unwanted intrusion. It was Sylvia's turn to make an unobtrusive retreat as she threaded her way past rickyards and cowsheds and long blank walls, she started suddenly at a strange sound, the echo of a boy's laughter, golden and equivocal. Jan, the only boy employed on the farm, a tow-headed, wizen-faced yokel, 
was visibly at work on a potato clearing halfway up the nearest hillside, and Mortimer, when questioned, knew of no other probable or possible begetter of the hidden mockery that had ambushed Sylvia's retreat. The memory of that untraceable echo was added to her other impressions of a furtive, sinister something that hung around Yesney. Of Mortimer she saw very little. Farm and woods and trout streams seemed to swallow him up from dawn till dusk. Once, following the direction she had seen him take in the morning, she came to an open space in a nut copse, further shut in by huge yew trees, in the center of which stood a stone pedestal surmounted by a small bronze figure of a youthful pan. It was a beautiful piece of workmanship, but her attention was chiefly held by the fact that a newly cut bunch of grapes had been placed as an offering at its feet. Grapes were none too plentiful at the manor house, and Sylvia snatched the bunch angrily from the pedestal. Contemptuous annoyance dominated her thoughts as she strolled slowly homeward, and then gave way to a sharp feeling of something that was very near fright. Across a thick tangle of undergrowth, a boy's face was scowling at her, brown and beautiful, with unutterably evil eyes. It was a lonely pathway. All pathways round Yesney were lonely for the matter of that, and she sped forward without waiting to give a closer scrutiny to this sudden apparition. It was not till she had reached the house that she discovered that she had dropped the bunch of grapes in her flight. "'I saw a youth in the woods today,' she told Mortimer that evening. "'Brown-faced and rather handsome, but a scoundrel to look at. A gypsy lad, I suppose.' "'A reasonable theory,' said Mortimer. "'Only there aren't any gypsies in these parts at present.' "'Then who was he?' asked Sylvia. "'And as Mortimer appeared to have no theory of his own, "'she passed on to recount her finding of the votive offering. "'I suppose it was your doing,' she observed. "'It's a harmless piece of lunacy, "'but people would think you dreadfully silly if they knew of it.' "'Did you meddle with it in any way?' asked Mortimer. "'I... I threw the grapes away. It seemed so silly, said Sylvia, watching Mortimer's impassive face for a sign of annoyance. I don't think you were wise to do that, he said reflectively. I've heard that the wood gods are rather horrible to those who molest them. Horrible, perhaps, to those who believe in them, but you see, I don't, retorted Sylvia. All the same, said Mortimer in his even, dispassionate tone. I should avoid the woods and orchards if I were you, and give a wide berth to the horned beasts on the farm. It was all nonsense, of course, but in that lonely, wood-girt spot, nonsense seemed able to rear a bastard brood of uneasiness. Mortimer, said Sylvia suddenly, I think we will go back to town sometime soon. Her victory had not been so complete as she had supposed. It had carried her onto ground that she was already anxious to quit. I don't think you will ever go back to town, said Mortimer. He seemed to be paraphrasing his mother's prediction as to himself. Sylvia noted, with dissatisfaction and some self-contempt, that the course of her next afternoon's ramble took her instinctively clear of the network of woods. As to the horned cattle, Mortimer's warning was scarcely needed, for she had always regarded them as of doubtful neutrality at the best. Her imagination unsexed the most matronly dairy cows and turned them into bulls liable to see red at any moment. The ram, who fed in the narrow paddock below the orchards, she had adjudged, after ample and cautious probation, to be of docile temperament, 
Today, however, she decided to leave his docility untested, for the usually tranquil beast was roaming with every sign of restlessness from corner to corner of his meadow. A low, fitful piping, as of some reedy flute, was coming from the depth of a neighboring copse, and there seemed to be some subtle connection between the animal's restless pacing and the wild music from the wood. Sylvia turned her steps in an upward direction and climbed the heather-clad slopes that stretched in rolling shoulders high above Yesney. She had left the piping notes behind her, but across the wooded combs at her feet the wind brought her another kind of music the straining bay of hounds in full chase. Yesney was just on the outskirts of the Devon and Somerset country, and the hunted deer sometimes came that way. Sylvia could presently see a dark body breasting hill after hill and sinking again and again out of sight as he crossed the combs, while behind him steadily swelled that relentless chorus, and she grew tense with the excited sympathy that one feels for any hunted thing in whose capture one is not directly interested. And at last he broke through the outmost line of oak scrub and fern and stood panting in the open, a fat September stag carrying a well-furnished head. His obvious course was to drop down to the brown pools of undercomb and thence make his way toward the red deer's favored sanctuary, the sea. To Sylvia's surprise, however, he turned his head to the upland slope and came lumbering resolutely onward over the heather, it will be dreadful, she thought. The hounds will pull him down under my very eyes. But the music of the pack seemed to have died away for a moment, and in its place she heard again that wild piping, which rose now on this side, now on that, as though urging the failing stag to a final effort. Sylvia stood well aside from his path, half hidden in a thick growth of whortle bushes, and watched him swing stiffly upward, his flanks dark with sweat the coarse hair on his neck showing light by contrast. The pipe music suddenly shrilled around her, seeming to come from the bushes at her very feet, and at the same moment the great beast slewed round and bore directly down upon her. In an instant her pity for the hunted animal was changed to wild terror at her own danger. The thick heather roots mocked her scrambling efforts at flight, and she looked frantically downward for a glimpse of oncoming hounds. The huge antler spikes were within a few yards of her, and in a flash of numbing fear she remembered Mortimer's warning to beware of horned beasts on the farm. And then, with a quick throb of joy, she saw that she was not alone. A human figure stood a few paces aside, kneeling in the whortle bushes. Drive it off! she shrieked, but the figure made no answering movement. The antlers drove straight at her breast. The acrid smell of the hunted animal was in her nostrils, but her eyes were filled with the horror of something she saw other than her oncoming death. And in her ears rang the echo of a boy's laughter, golden and equivocal. This somewhat lesser-known story by Saki was probably written in 1908 or 1909, and it appeared first in the collection The Chronicles of Clovis in 1912. The Wolves of Kernogratz by Saki 
Are there any old legends attached to the castle? asked Conrad of his sister. Conrad was a prosperous Hamburg merchant, but he was the one poetically dispositioned member of an eminently practical family. The Baroness Grubel shrugged her plump shoulders. There are always legends hanging about in these old places. They are not difficult to invent, and they cost nothing. In this case, there is a story that when one dies in the castle, all the dogs in the village and the wild beasts in the forest howl the night long. It would not be pleasant to listen to, would it? It would be weird and romantic, said the Hamburg merchant. Anyhow, it isn't true, said the Baroness complacently. Since we bought the place, we have had proof that nothing of the sort happens. When the old mother-in-law died last springtime, we all listened, but there was no howling. It was just a story that lends dignity to the place without costing anything. The story is not as you have told it, said Amelie, the gray old governess. Everyone turned and looked at her in astonishment. She was wont to sit, silent and prim, and faded in her place at the table, never speaking unless someone spoke to her, and there were few who troubled themselves to make conversation with her. Today, a sudden volubility had descended on her. She continued to talk, rapidly and nervously, looking straight in front of her and seeming to address no one in particular. It was not when anyone dies in the castle that the howling is heard. It is when one of the Kernogratz family died here that the wolves came from far and near and howled at the edge of the forest just before the death hour. There were only a few couple of wolves that had their lairs in this part of the forest. But at such a time, the keepers say, there would be scores of them gliding about in the shadows and howling in chorus. And the dogs of the castle and the village and all the farms round would bay and howl in fear and anger at the wolf chorus. And as the soul of the dying one left its body, a tree would crash down in the park. That is what happened when a Kernogratz died in his family castle. But for a stranger dying here, of course no wolf would howl and no tree would fall. Oh, no. There was a tone of defiance, almost of contempt, in her voice as she said the last words. The well-fed, much too well-dressed Baroness stared angrily at the dowdy old woman who had come forth from her usual, seemly position of effacement to speak so disrespectfully. You seem to know quite a lot about the von Kernogratz legends, Fräulein Schmidt, she said sharply. I did not know that family histories were among the subjects you were supposed to be proficient in. The answer to her taunt was even more unexpected and astonishing than the conversational outbreak which had provoked it. I am a von Kernogratz myself, said the old woman. That is why I know the family history. You, a von Kernogratz, you, came in an incredulous chorus. When we became very poor, she explained, and I had to go out and give teaching lessons, I took another name. I thought it would be more in keeping. But my grandfather spent much of his time as a boy in this castle, and my father used to tell me many stories about it. And of course I knew all the family legends and stories. When one has nothing left to one but memories, one guards and dusts them with a special care. I little thought when I took service with you that I should one day come with you to the old home of my family. I could wish it had been anywhere else. There was silence when she finished speaking, 
and then the Baroness turned the conversation to a less embarrassing topic than family histories. But afterwards, when the old governess had slipped away quietly to her duties, there arose a clamor of derision and disbelief. It was an impertinence, snapped out the Baron, his protruding eyes taking on a scandalized expression. Fancy the woman talking like that at our table. She almost told us we were nobodies, and I don't believe a word of it. She is just a Schmidt and nothing more. She has been talking to some of the peasants about the old Colonel Grant's family and raked up their history and their stories. She wants to make herself out of some consequence, said the Baroness. She knows she will soon be past work, and she wants to appeal to our sympathies. Her grandfather, indeed. The Baroness had the usual number of grandfathers, but she never, never boasted about them. I dare say her grandfather was a pantry boy or something of the sort in the castle, sniggered the Baron. That part of the story may be true. The merchant from Hamburg said nothing. He had seen tears in the old woman's eyes when she spoke of guarding her memories. Or, being of an imaginative disposition, he thought he had. I shall give her notice as soon as the New Year's festivities are over, said the Baroness. Till then I shall be too busy to manage without her. But she had to manage without her all the same, for in the cold, biting weather after Christmas the old governess fell ill and kept to her room. It is most provoking, said the Baroness, as her guests sat round the fire on one of the last evenings of the dying year. All the time that she has been with us, I cannot remember that she was ever seriously ill, too ill to go about and do her work, I mean. And now, when I have the house full, and she could be useful in so many ways, she goes and breaks down. One is sorry for her, of course. She looks so withered and shrunken. But it is intensely annoying all the same. Most annoying, agreed the banker's wife sympathetically. It is the intense cold, I expect. It breaks the old people up. It has been unusually cold this year. The frost is the sharpest it has been known in December for many years, said the Baron. And of course she is quite old, said the Baroness. I wish I had given her notice some weeks ago. Then she would have left before this happened to her. Why, Wappy, what is the matter with you? The small, woolly lapdog had leapt suddenly down from its cushion and crept shivering under the sofa. At the same moment, an outburst of angry barking came from the dogs in the castle yard and other dogs could be heard yapping and barking in the distance. "'What is disturbing the animals?' asked the Baron. And then the humans, listening intently, heard the sound that had roused the dogs to their demonstrations of fear and rage, heard a long-drawn whining howl rising and falling, seeming at one moment leagues away, at others sweeping across the snow till it appeared to come from the foot of the castle walls." All the starved, cold misery of a frozen world, all the relentless hunger fury of the wild, blended with other forlorn and haunting melodies to which one could give no name, seemed concentrated in that wailing cry. Wolves, said the Baron. Their music broke forth in one raging burst, seeming to come from everywhere. Hundreds of wolves, said the Hamburg merchant, who was a man of strong imagination. Moved by some impulse which she could not have explained, the Baroness left her guests and made her way to the narrow, cheerless room where the old governess lay watching the hours of the dying year slip by. In spite of the biting cold of the winter night, the window stood open. 
With a scandalized exclamation on her lips, the baroness rushed forward to close it. Leave it open, said the old woman in a voice that for all its weakness carried an air of command such as the baroness had never heard before from her lips. But you will die of cold, she expostulated. I am dying in any case, said the voice, and I want to hear their music. They have come from far and wide to sing the death music of my family. It is beautiful that they have come. I am the last von Kernegratz that will die in our old castle, and they have come to sing to me. Hark how loud they are calling. The cry of the wolves rose on the still winter air and floated round the castle walls in long-drawn piercing wails. The old woman lay back on her couch with a look of long-delayed happiness on her face. Go away, she said to the baroness. I am not lonely any more. I am one of a great old family. I think she is dying, said the baroness when she had rejoined her guests. I suppose we must send for a doctor, and that terrible howling. Not for much money would I have such death music. That music is not to be bought for any amount of money, said Conrad. Hark! What is that other sound? asked the baron, as a noise of splitting and crashing was heard. It was a tree falling in the park. There was a moment of constrained silence, and then the banker's wife spoke. It's the intense cold that is splitting the trees. It is also the cold that has brought the wolves out in such numbers. It is many years since we have had such a cold winter. The baroness eagerly agreed that the cold was responsible for these things. It was the cold of the open window, too, which caused the heart failure that made the doctor's ministrations unnecessary for the old Fraulein. But the notice in the newspapers looked very well. On December 29th, at Schloss Kernogratz, Amelie von Kernogratz, for many years the valued friend of Baron and Baroness Grubel. This story was originally published in the Morning Post in January 1913 and later appeared in the posthumous collection The Toys of Peace and Other Papers in 1919. The Open Window by Saki My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Nuttall, said a very self-possessed young lady of fifteen. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttall endeavored to say the correct something which would duly flatter the niece of the moment without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately, he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards helping the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. I know how it will be, his sister had said when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat. You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul, and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Miss Sappleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. Do you know many of the people around here? asked the niece, when she judged that they had had sufficient silent communion. Hardly a soul, said Frampton. 
My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here. He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. Then you know practically nothing about my aunt, pursued the self-possessed young lady. Only her name and address, admitted the caller. He was wondering whether Miss Sappleton was in the married or widowed state. An undefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. Her great tragedy happened just three years ago, said the child. That would be since your sister's time. Her tragedy? asked Frampton. Somehow, in this restful country spot, tragedies seemed out of place. You may wonder why we keep that window open wide on an October afternoon, said the niece, indicating a large French window that opened onto the lawn. It is quite warm for the time of year, said Frampton, but has the window got anything to do with the tragedy? Out through that window three years ago to a day, her husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back. In crossing the moor to their favorite snipe-shooting ground, they were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog. It had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning. Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Here the child's voice lost its self-possessed note and became falteringly human. Poor aunt always thinks that they will come back some day, they and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them, and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt. She has often told me how they went out, her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm, and Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing, Birdie, why do you bound? As he always did to tease her, because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know, sometimes on still, quiet evenings like this, I almost get a creepy feeling that they will all walk in through that window. She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with a whirl of apologies for being late in making her appearance. I hope Vera has been amusing you, she said. She has been very interesting, said Frampton. I hope you don't mind the open window, said Miss Sappleton briskly. My husband and brothers will be home directly from shooting, and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipes in the marshes today, so they'll make a fine mess over my poor carpets. So like you menfolk, isn't it? She rattled on cheerfully about the shooting and the scarcity of birds and the prospect for duck in the winter. To Frampton, it was all purely horrible. He made a desperate but only partially successful effort to turn the talk to a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window and the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. The doctors agree in ordering me complete rest, an absence of mental excitement and avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise announced Frampton, who labored under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least details of one's ailments and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet, they are not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Miss Sappleton, in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment. Then she suddenly brightened into alert attention. 
but not to what Frampton was saying. Here they are at last, she cried, just in time for tea, and don't they look as if they were muddy up to the eyes? Frampton shivered slightly and turned toward the niece with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was staring out through the open window with dazed horror in her eyes. In a chill shock of nameless fear, Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn toward the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulders. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly, they neared the house, and then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dusk, I said, Bertie, why do you bound? Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat. The hall door, the gravel drive, and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid an imminent collision. Here we are, my dear, said the bearer of the white Macintosh coming in through the window. Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that who'd bolted out as we came up? A most extraordinary man, a Mr. Nuttle, said Miss Sappleton, could only talk about his illness and dashed off without a word of goodbye or apology when you arrived. One would think he had seen a ghost. I expect it was the Spaniel, said the niece calmly. He told me he had a horror of dogs. He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs, and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him, enough to make anyone lose their nerve. Romance, at short notice, was her specialty. This is easily one of Saki's most well-known stories. Uh, it first appeared in the collection Beasts and Super Beasts in 1914, uh, but has been done in all kinds of uh, all kinds of TV shows and uh, and radio productions. Um, in fact, this story was my first encounter with Saki. I, when I was growing up, I had a uh, an Alfred Hitchcock album, and this was one of the stories that was featured on that. And I always remember it as, uh, as being particularly enjoyable. The Interlopers by Saki In a forest of mixed growth somewhere on the eastern spurs of the Carpathians, a man stood one winter night watching and listening as though he waited for some beast of the woods to come within the range of his vision, and, later, of his rifle. But the game for whose presence he kept so keen an outlook was none that figured in the sportsman's calendar as lawful and proper for the chase. Ulrich von Gradwitz patrolled the dark forest in quest of a human enemy. The forest lands of Gradwitz were of wide extent and well stocked with game. The narrow strip of precipitous woodland that lay on its outskirt was not remarkable for the game it harbored or the shooting it afforded, but it was the most jealously guarded of its owner's territorial possessions. 
A famous lawsuit in the days of his grandfather had wrested it from the illegal possession of a neighboring family of petty landowners. The dispossessed party had never acquiesced in the judgment of the courts, and a long series of poaching affrays and similar scandals had embittered the relationship between the families for three generations. The neighbor feud had grown into a personal one since Ulrich had come to be head of his family. If there was a man in the world whom he detested and wished ill to, it was George Znaman, the inheritor of the quarrel and the tireless game snatcher and raider of the disputed border forest. The feud might perhaps have died down or been compromised if the personal ill will of the two men had not stood in the way. As boys, they had thirsted for one another's blood. As men, each prayed that misfortune might fall on the other. And this wind-scourged winter night, Ulrich had banded together his foresters to watch the dark forest, not in quest of four-footed quarry, but to keep a lookout for the prowling thieves whom he suspected of being afoot from across the land boundary. The roebuck, which usually kept in the sheltered hollows during a storm wind, were running like driven things tonight, and there was movement and unrest among the creatures that were wont to sleep throughout the dark hours. Assuredly, there was a disturbing element in the forest, and Ulrich could guess the quarter from whence it came. He strayed away by himself from the watchers, whom he had placed in ambush on the crest of the hill, and wandered far down the steep slope, amid the wild tangle of undergrowth, peering through the tree trunks, and listening through the whistling and skirling of the wind, and the restless beating of the branches, for sight and sound of the marauders. If only on this wild night, in this dark, lone spot, he might come across George Znaman, man to man, with none to witness, that was the wish that was uppermost in his thoughts. And as he stepped round the trunk of a huge beech, he came face to face with the man he sought. The two enemies stood glaring at one another for a long, silent moment. Each had a rifle in his hand. Each had hate in his heart and murder uppermost in his mind. The chance had come to give full play to the passions of a lifetime. But a man who has been brought up under the code of a restraining civilization cannot easily nerve himself to shoot down his neighbor in cold blood and without word spoken, except for an offense against his hearth and honor. And before the moment of hesitation had given way to action, a deed of nature's own violence overwhelmed them both. A fierce shriek of storm had been answered by a splitting crash over their heads, and ere they could leap aside, a mass of falling beech tree had thundered down on them. Ulrich von Gradwitz found himself stretched on the ground, one arm numb beneath him, and the other held almost as helplessly in a tight tangle of forked branches, while both legs were pinned beneath the fallen mass. His heavy shooting boots had saved his feet from being crushed to pieces, but if his fractures were not as serious as they might have been, at least it was evident that he could not move from his present position till someone came to release him. The descending twig had slashed the skin of his face, and he had to wink away some drops of blood from his eyelashes before he could take in a general view of the disaster. At his side, so near that under ordinary circumstances he could almost have touched him, lay George Znaman, alive and struggling, but obviously as helplessly pinioned down as himself. All around them lay a thick, strewn wreckage of splintered branches and broken twigs. Relief at being alive and exasperation at his captive plight 
brought a strange medley of pious thank offerings and sharp curses to Ulrich's lips. George, who was nearly blinded with the blood which trickled across his eyes, stopped his struggling for a moment to listen and then gave a short, snarling laugh. So you're not killed as you ought to be, but you're caught anyway, he cried. Caught fast. Oh, what a jest. Ulrich von Gradwitz, snared in his stolen forest. There's real justice for you. And he laughed again, mockingly and savagely. I'm caught in my own forest land, retorted Ulrich. When my men come to release us, you will wish, perhaps, that you were in a better plight than caught poaching on a neighbor's land. Shame on you. George was silent for a moment. Then he answered quietly, Are you so sure that your men will find much to release? I have men too in the forest tonight, close behind me, and they will be here first and do the releasing. When they drag me out from under these damned branches, it won't need much clumsiness on their part to roll this massive trunk right over on top of you. Your men will find you dead under a fallen beech tree. For form's sake, I shall send my condolences to your family. It is a useful hint, said Ulrich fiercely. My men had orders to follow in ten minutes' time, seven of which must have gone by already. And when they get me out, I will remember the hint. Only, as you will have met your death poaching on my lands, I don't think I can decently send any message of condolence to your family. Good, snarled George. Good. We fight this quarrel out to the death, you and I and our foresters, with no cursed interlopers to come between us. Death and damnation to you, Ulrich von Gradwitz. The same to you, George Znaman, forest thief, game snatcher. Both men spoke with the bitterness of possible defeat before them, for each knew that it might be long before his men would seek him out or find him. It was a bare matter of chance which party would arrive first on the scene. Both had now given up the useless struggle to free themselves from the mass of wood that held them down. Ulrich limited his endeavors to an effort to bring his one partially free arm near enough to his outer coat pocket to draw out his wine flask. Even when he had accomplished that operation, it was long before he could manage the unscrewing of the stopper or get any of the liquid down his throat. But what a heaven-sent draught it seemed. It was an open winter, and little snow had fallen yet, hence the captive suffered less from the cold than might have been the case at this season of the year. Nevertheless, the wine was warming and reviving to the wounded man, and he looked across with something like a throb of pity to where his enemy lay, just keeping the groans of pain and weariness from crossing his lips. "'Could you reach this flask if I threw it over to you?' asked Ulrich suddenly. "'There is good wine in it, and one may as well be as comfortable as one can. Let us drink, even if tonight one of us dies.' No, I can scarcely see anything, there is so much blood caked round my eyes, said George. And in any case, I don't drink wine with an enemy. Ulrich was silent for a few minutes, and lay listening to the weary screeching of the wind. An idea was slowly forming and growing in his brain. An idea that gained strength every time he looked across at the man who was fighting so grimly against pain and exhaustion. In the pain and languor that Ulrich himself was feeling, the old, fierce hatred seemed to be dying down. Neighbor, he said presently, 
Do as you please if your men come first. It was a fair compact. But as for me, I've changed my mind. If my men are the first to come, you shall be the first to be helped, as though you were my guest. We have quarreled like devils all our lives over this stupid strip of forest where the trees can't even stand upright in a breath of wind. Lying here tonight, thinking I've come... Lying here tonight, thinking, I've come to think we've been rather fools. There are better things in life than getting the better of a boundary dispute. Neighbor, if you will help me to bury the old quarrel, I... I will ask you to be my friend. George Naaman was silent for so long that Ulrich thought, perhaps, he had fainted with the pain of his injuries. Then he spoke slowly and in jerks. How the whole region would stare and gabble if we rode into the market square together. No one living can remember seeing as Naaman and Avon Gradvitz talking to one another in friendship. And what peace there would be among the forester folk if we ended our feud tonight. And if we chose to make peace among our people, there is none other to interfere, no interlopers from outside. You would come and keep the Sylvester night beneath my roof, and I would come and feast on some high day at your castle. I would never fire a shot on your land save when you invited me as a guest. And you should come and shoot with me down in the marshes where the wildfowl are. In all the countryside, there are none that could hinder if we willed to make peace. I have never thought to have wanted to do other than hate you all my life. But I think I have changed my mind about things too this last half hour. And you offered me your wine flask, Ulrich von Gradwitz. I will be your friend. For a space, both men were silent, turning over in their minds the wonderful changes that this dramatic reconciliation would bring about. In the cold, gloomy forest, with the wind tearing in fitful gusts through the naked branches and whistling round the tree trunks, they lay and waited for the help that would now bring release and succor to both parties. They each prayed a private prayer that his men might be the first to arrive, so that he might be the first to show honorable attention to the enemy that had become a friend. Presently, the wind dropped for a moment. Ulrich broke silence. Let's shout for help, he said. In this lull, our voices may carry a little way. They won't carry far through the trees and undergrowth, said George. But we can try. Together, then. The two raised their voices in a prolonged hunting call. Together, again, said Ulrich a few minutes later, after listening in vain for an answering halloo. I heard nothing but the pestilential wind, said George hoarsely. There was silence again for some minutes. And then Ulrich gave a joyful cry. I can see figures coming through the wood. They are following the way I came down the hillside. Both men raised their voices in as loud a shout as they could muster. They hear us. They've stopped. Now they see us. They're running down the hill toward us, cried Ulrich. How many of them are there? asked George. I can't see distinctly, said Ulrich. Nine or ten? Then they are yours, said George. I had only seven out with me. They are making all the speed they can, brave lads, said Ulrich gladly. Are they your men? asked George. Are they your men? he repeated impatiently as Ulrich did not answer. No, said Ulrich with a laugh, the idiotic, chattering laugh of a man unstrung with hideous fear. 
Who are they? asked George quickly, straining his eyes to see what the other would gladly not have seen. Wolves! All right, this story was likely written while he was serving in the trenches during World War I, but it was not published until 1919 when it appeared in the collection The Toys of Peace and Other Papers, uh, which, as mentioned earlier, was a, a posthumous, uh, posthumously uh, published collection of stories. Um, I have to say that's probably one of my favorite stories of his. Um, it's right up there with uh, the music on the hill, I think. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for listening to us today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the stories. Um, you can uh, find our, our podcast and follow us on iTunes, Google Play Music, and Stitcher. Uh, you can also contact us at bygonetales at gmail.com, as well as uh, our Facebook page, Bygone Tales Podcast. Uh, please stop in and uh, and say hi to us there. Um, give us a follow. We uh, we appreciate all the followers we can get. Uh, periodically on on the um, Facebook page, I will be putting up a uh, a fable by Ambrose Bierce, and uh, periodically I, I throw up a a quote that I come across that I particularly enjoy. Well, thank you for spending your time with us this week, and uh, we will see you again in a couple of weeks. Goodbye. And if you've enjoyed the stories read tonight, please, by all means, check out oldstyletales.com. All one word. You know, I, I think their website says it best. Quote, Old Style Tales Press is an independent literary press which publishes crafted anthologies of classic ghost stories, tales of horror, and the supernatural from the golden age of horror fiction, 1818 to 1937. Editions featuring original illustrations, annotations, and opening and closing commentary on each story. And I have to tell you, the production quality of these books is absolutely fantastic. And really, it's a very, very attractive price point in order to purchase these. You can buy them either as ebook or as physical books that you can hold in your hand. And if you're a fan of books like I am, I know you're going to go for the physical books that you can hold in your hand. However, you can get a collection of all all the ebooks that they have for a very affordable price. Please go and check them out. It's a great product that they put out. In fact, I recommend it so highly that they're not even actually promoting this show. I just really, really like their product. So check them out. OldStyleTales.com